The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome into episode number 10 of the Marine Layer Podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we'll break down a couple of acquisitions by the Mariners this week. They signed A.J. Pollock to a one-year deal and acquire... Justin Topa from the Milwaukee Brewers. We're going to do a trait exercise like we did a couple weeks ago, except we did pitchers last time. This time we're going to do hitters. So we're going to take a hitting trait from one Mariners player and give it to a different Mariner. We'll take a look around baseball with our MLB wraparound. Rafael Devers signs an extension with the Red Sox and third time's the charm, I guess, with Carlos Correa. He has reportedly agreed to a deal with the Minnesota Twins. We'll close out the episode with Speak Your Mind. With that, let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into episode number 10, 10 episodes, Lyle, of the Marine Layer podcast. It's kind of, it's gone by pretty fast. We've, you know, gotten this intro down. And yeah, 10 episodes, that's about 10 hours of content. Pretty good. I think, I guess technically we have throw in 11 as well with the Teoscar episode. But, you know, it kind of flies by. And next thing you know, maybe we'll be at 100. That's the goal. It's pretty crazy to think it's been two months of doing this now because we started the podcast about mid-November. And I'd say it's been going pretty strong since then. It's been a blast. Really can't complain much like of what the Mariners did this week. We've been clamoring and I think me and you have, sort of acknowledged over the last few weeks looking at the overall free agent spending. I don't know if we brought, did we bring up that exact number on this podcast? I'm not sure, but I'm about to say it right now because the Mariners for a number of weeks were the lowest spending team amongst them all in free agency. And we're sitting there looking at is like, that doesn't look right. That doesn't look good. You can't have the Oakland A's spending 34 times as much as you in one off season, but Mariners have broken that. They've signed AJ Pollock to a one year, $7 million deal. Shout out to the breakdown we did a couple weeks ago. You can go check out episode number, I wrote it down, episode number seven, I believe, uh, where we broke down A.J. Pollock and how he would fit on this Mariners team. But A.J., after turning down a $13 million deal, uh, $13 million option with the Chicago White Sox, has signed in Seattle. Thankfully, I like the move. I think it's pretty easy to like the move. I don't think there's going to be much disagreement among anybody about the move because like we've talked about is it the flashy signing no did they go get Aaron Judge no but we knew they needed a right-handed outfield bat to help platoon with Kelnick and at the very least somebody that's proven and somebody that can hit left-handed pitching Pollock does all of that and we talked about he has crushed lefties his whole career he crushed lefties last year so this is a pretty seamless move for the Mariners and a guy that didn't cost a lot either we did break okay, so we did break it down on episode number seven of this podcast. So if you want to go back, you ha- if you haven't listened to it or you want to le- re-listen to why AJ Pollock in much greater detail than what we'll do on this segment on why he'd be a good fit on the roster, you can go back and look at that because his numbers have not changed. So you can go check that out. Uh, episode number seven of this podcast. I thought we did a pretty good job, but you're right. It, it gives an opportunity 
for the Mariners to A, not give up on Jared Kelnick, but improve the offense and improve the overall position of left field and add in an insurance policy, essentially, for your left fielders with a guy who is a former all-star and used to be a star center fielder, slowed down a little bit, but you know plays a pretty decent left field and, most importantly, crushes lefties, which you don't want to put Jared in there against because Jared hasn't done very well against lefties in his career. But he has done well against righties, and that's been a big topic of conversation. Look, this is a small sample size, but just for what it's worth, that final stint Jared Kelnick had with the Mariners those last couple weeks of 2022, this is all against right-handed pitching. He only struck out a little less than 18% of the time, which is really good. He was walking just under 18% of the time, which is really good. He put up an 879 OPS, really good, and a 155 WRC plus, 55% above league average, which is really good. If they just face him against righties for now, again, I think long-term they want him playing every day, but if you can just start to ease him in, get his confidence back up where he's strictly facing righties and he's mashing like that, that's a perfect solution. Because then you have Pollock to face the lefties. And if Pollock's really playing that well, we've talked about this team still needs a DH too. So on days where there's right-handers throwing, you could put Kalnick in left field and you could DH Pollock if you want to. And it's not like Pollock is bad against righties in his career because, you know, it first career, I mean, he's, I think it's like a 106 WRC plus against righties versus a 129 career WRC plus versus lefties. So uh, there's a little bit of a drop-off, but career-wise, A.J. Pollock is still pretty good against righties. He just wasn't very good against righties last year. Might be a little bit because he's getting up there in age. He's in his mid-30s. His bat is slowing down. But if he finds a little bit of that juice back in his bat and he's hitting well against righties, that would be a pretty good option. So I was kind of mapping it out, Lyle. So if you're taking a look on how the Mariners outfield a look, on righties versus lefties next year or this sorry this upcoming spring this is how the Mariners outfield will look this upcoming spring with the current roster right versus left so if you have a righty on the mound I'm imagining Kelnick in left field Julio in center Teoscar in right and then I put a question mark at DH because I still don't think we know and I still don't think the Mariners know which is why they say they want another bat versus lefties you have Pollock in left field you have Julio in center you have I put Sam Haggerty in right field and then Teoscar at DH because I think that's your lefty mashing crew right there. Sam Haggerty, pretty good at hitting left-handed pitching. Yeah, that seems right. And then Dylan Moore would probably be at second base on those days too because that's another guy that's going to face a lot of lefties. But for the outfield, I think that makes sense. I think that's a pretty reasonable trio of outfielders you'd run out there against left-handers. So yeah, that seems like a perfectly fine platoon. You're going to play guys to their strengths. And we look at this deal with A.J. Pollock, it actually comes out to about net even, to be honest, for what he turned out. So he turned down a $13 million option with the White Sox to hit free agency, probably assuming he was going to get a multi-year deal. But I think some teams didn't really like his injury histories, had a history of hamstring injuries, especially his last three trips to the I.L. are all, all hamstring injuries. So that could slow him down a little bit. So the market probably wasn't what he thought, which is when you think about this in a vacuum, it's like, when was the last time a guy took like a one-year, a hitter took a one-year prove-it deal in Seattle? 
few and far between, to be honest. But if you look at it overall with that deal, so he, he opted out of his deal. So he gets a $5 million buyout from the White Sox and then signs $7 million with the Mariners. So you're netting $12 million in salary total from the opt-out plus the one-year contract versus a one-year $13 million. So it's not really as stark as you think, but sort of interesting from AJ's standpoint. But it would make sense that he didn't. Uh, that he you know, was going to get it because he probably didn't find the market that he wanted. What I didn't know, uh, which makes a little bit more sense, I'm sure Jerry's a big A.J. Pollock guy because Jerry was actually in the Diamondbacks front office in 2009 when they drafted him out of Notre Dame uh, in the first round. There, I had to sneak in Notre Dame there, dog, <laughs> with the 17th overall pick. So it's good for Jerry as well. He gets to sort of reunite. Yeah, and it's a guy that, Fits their system. Again, for all the reasons we've explained so far, along with the fact that, and I really can't stress this one enough, he's no, but he's by no means going to win a gold glove in left field, but he is so much better than Jesse Winker playing defense. Plus four defensive runs saved last year is perfectly fine. That's above average. Not like Jesse Winker, who when he'd see a ball rolling like 10 feet to his right, he's like, well, I'll just let it roll to the wall and play off the wall. No, Pollock can play some real defense. Let's just remind people Jesse Winker was the worst defensive outfielder in baseball last year by defensive runs saved. And he played less innings than the guys, you know, he was around because, again, the last month and a half, the Mariners said, you're not playing in the outfield. We literally we cannot. We're losing games because we have you on the outfield. Again, if you want to hear our full A.J. Pollock breakdown, episode seven uh, of the Marine Layer podcast, it's a, it's a good listen. It's about 15 minutes to go listen here, you know, how A.J. Pollock really does uh, fit in with this roster. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say before we transition here is maybe the best part about A.J. Pollock, that he got caught on camera last year catching that line out from Yuli Gurriel and then telling him to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good camera work there. I, I want to give that camera cameraman an award for, uh, for oh. catching that moment. He's got some fire in him. This team needs some fire. I mean, they've got some already, but the more the merrier, right? Well, we just complain so often how the Mariners as a franchise in the 2000s and the 2010s didn't really have any fire because they would never like get in any altercations or any fights, really. They wouldn't they wouldn't be too chippy besides the 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 Richie sex, like a Richie sex in here and a Milton Bradley there. I mean, it really wasn't too much. And we're just begging. It's like, please. God, please, someone just someone start chirping, please. And it's and it's finally happened a little bit. That's a one positive thing for Jesse. I thank him for that. Yeah, they tried to make up for 20 years of non-fights with one scuffle against the Angels last June. <laughs> but transitioning for from some fire in the clubhouse to some fire on the mound, the Mariners made a trade as well as a free agent signing this week. They acquire right-handed reliever Justin Topa from the Milwaukee Brewers. In exchange, they send minor league right-hander Joseph Hernandez back to Milwaukee. Topa's probably going to be a project. He's thrown less than 20 big league innings for his career. He has a career, four, or he put up a 491 ERA in 2022. But as we know, when the Mariners make moves for some of these right-handed relievers, there's usually something that warrants it. And I believe with Topa, that's the case here. Yeah, as you mentioned, only under 20 career innings, and it's been a lot of injuries. He had a flexor tendon strain in 2021, and it, it health has really been the name of the game for him. He's been in indie ball a couple times. I mean, he was drafted all the way back in 2013, this, a 17th round pick. 
He's been an indie ball a couple times, so he's been up and down. But if you look at the profile of him, it's it's pretty unique in in a in it and it models itself after uh, some successful uh, types that he we've seen. Um, I, I was just looking on Twitter of sort of the uh, of a guy we follow, Joe Doyle, who um, works at Prospects Live, says you know the anal- the the numbers really like what Justin Topa throws because we're we're looking at the profile. It's a really heavy fastball, averages about ninety seven and a half miles an hour, and then a sweeping slider, a really true nasty sweeping slider. I went back and watched some of his highlights in twenty twenty when he had two point three ERA. I mean that thing really bites. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff to like it. And and Joe threw out a comp for for Topa on the high end. It's Clay Holmes who, you know, has sort of a, a similar profile, is really good for the Yankees this year, but sort of a bowling ball, right-handed, three-quarter sinker that is really hard to hit. If Justin Tova turns into Clay Holmes, etch him right in the back end of the rotation right now. Like, oh, yeah, please. I mean, I'm down. I'm down. But I thought that was really intriguing. And it does seem like, despite the amount of injuries he had and amount of up and down from the minors he's had, it's a lot to like, to be honest. I, I was really liking what I was seeing. Same here. I mean, the first thing I thought of when I got to look at him is this guy's a Mariners reliever. And what I mean by that is he is bigger and probably stronger than players like Paul Seawald and Penn Murphy. But now what I mean by that is his fastball is firmer. He's six foot four, 200 pounds. The other two guys are not that. But when you look at his profile, like you talked about, He's got a fastball that serves more as a sinker, and he's got a slider. So he's got a real two-pitch mix, which is kind of the bread and butter of this Mariners bullpen. And along with that, he's kind of got the deceptive delivery that's not right over the top. It's out of the unique arm slot. You know, he's got the—he comes off the mound in an interesting way, and it can be tough for hitters to pick up on. So there was parts of Topa that kind of reminded me of what Seawald and Murphy could be. Now, Topa may start this year in AAA, but again, comparing him to Seawald and Murphy, Paul Seawald started 2021 in AAA. He came up and was one of the Mariners' best relievers. Penn Murphy started 2022 in AAA. He put up a sub-3 ERA last year. I think Topa could be kind of a similar story if everything clicks for him. And it's just been sort of how Jerry Depoto likes to build bullpens, and we agree with this philosophy because it's been proven true the last two years. You don't really need to invest too much in your relievers because... For the most part, relievers are very year to year. That's why, you know, a lot of people are against giving relievers big contracts because it's like, well, Edwin Diaz, you had a 1-3 ERA this year, but two seasons ago, you were absolutely horrid. And we could see you being bad next year because, hey, you'll leave a couple of fastballs over the middle of the plate. A guy puts a barrel on it and all of a sudden, instead of a 1-3 ERA, you have a 3-8 ERA and you become that much less valuable. So when you look at, what you want in a reliever. It's like, okay, so we know there's going to be so much variation while we're trying to track down relievers. Why don't we just go after guys who we think with not the name, we're going to look at the pitches. We're going to look at the mold and we're going to look at what fits best for us. And what's fit best for the Mariners is, is hard fastballs and sliders. That's what their bullpen is built off of. That's what most major league bullpens are built off of, but especially the Mariners. If you look at the Mariners current roster and what everyone on 
in their bullpen does well. It's throwing a good whiffable fastball and throwing a sharp slider. And this qualifies. So if you're only going to give up a guy who's a top 30 prospect in your system, that is a 22 year old in, in low a that, you know, despite coming off a breakout year, Joseph Hernandez, we were talking to a friend of ours who works in the Mariners organization. That's a pretty decent fan of Joseph Hernandez and saw him in the minor leagues last year. I mean, it's not like you're giving up too much, to be honest. So uh, the, it, it, it is a very on-brand Mariners move in terms of how they want to build their bullpen. Topa's going into his age 32 season, like you talked about. He's on the older side, much like Seawald was when he came up in 2021. That doesn't mean he can't be effective either. Do we believe that between Justin Topa and Trevor Gott, at least one of them is going to hit and be successful? My guess is yes. What do you qualify as a hit? Somebody that's effective in the Mariners' bullpen. Do they have to be as good as Seawald's been? No, but let's say they put up similar production to Penn Murphy or Matt Festa. Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty good chance. I mean, they're, again, both, you know, both from the Brewers and both offer things that are really sort of unique. So, I mean, there's a plus there. Yeah, remember, you have to replace what Eric Swanson brought you last year. Even though Eric Swanson fell out of the postseason rotation or, or selection from the bullpen for some reason, me and you still can't figure out. That that's still a lot of production. That's you know a sub two ERA and really just elite, 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 elite stuff from from Eric Swanson, who's now going to be fa- uh, pitching for a rival because you got Teoscar Hernandez and they got. Uh, Eric Swanson, and that's a big hole in your bullpen for something you really relied upon to win games for you last year. Yeah, and I think that between two of those, or one of those two guys at least, they'll be able to fill that void because the Mariners have found relievers that have low value at face value, but in their eyes could be really productive. They've turned those guys into stars year after year now, and I don't see why they can't do it again here in 2023. And we talk about Mariners bullpen. It's not just these guys who are have a potential to be a star in the Mariners bullpen this year. There's still a lot of arms in the system, which might not have a chance in the rotation that could, or might get a chance in the bullpen. I mean, I would like I would say the odds Lyle are pretty good. We're going to see along with these two additions, Trevor Gott and Justin Topa, that we're going to see one of Taylor Dollard, Emerson Hancock, or Bryce Miller in the bullpen this year, and probably pitching a significant amount in the bullpen. Can I add one more name to that? Yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if we see Isaiah Campbell either. That guy was oh, lights yeah. out in the bullpen in double A this year. Yeah, and Isaiah Campbell, a former starter. He's been stretched out. He's on the older side, but, you know, a guy they drafted in the second round. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and he was in Logan's draft. He was drafted right behind Logan. I believe he was drafted the pick after. So that that's another guy. And he, you're right. He's already been closing uh, at the double A level. So that could be interesting. So there, there's a whole bunch of things. We're, we're going to do some positional previews, I think, uh, in the coming weeks. And I would imagine the bullpen's going to get its own episode because I don't think we're going to say, hey, who's going to be the closer? Who's going to be the setup guy? I think we're just going to group the whole bullpen together. And I think we can go into that a little more depth. But that's a bit of foreshadowing for, for what we're going to do here in the coming weeks. So let's keep this current. This isn't really foreshadowing, but we're going to do an exercise that we did a couple weeks ago, which I really had fun with. So we did the pitcher version of this where you take a pitch, you take someone's pitch from one Mariners pitcher and give it to another Mariners pitcher. And this time we're going to do it 
with hitters and sort of hitting traits. So we're going to take one trait from one Mariners hitter and give it to a different Mariners player to perform with in the 2023 season. Lyle, what is your trait you're going to give to a different Mariner? Okay, so I think this one is a little bit more realistic than the pitcher version of this that I did, which was trying to turn Marco Gonzalez into Randy Johnson with Munoz's fastball. This one's a little more realistic, and it's one that I think the Mariners could really benefit from. I'm going to take Dylan Moore's plate approach and ability to walk, and I'm going to give it to Evan White. I think that's the first time we've mentioned his name on this podcast in our two months of recording so far. So yeah, remember that guy, Evan White? First round pick in 2017, he debuted in 2020, he hasn't played in almost two years in the majors due to injuries, and he's really had a tough go of it through his first couple seasons. Well, part of that is because his career strikeout rate is nearly 38% in the big leagues, and this is a guy that really had no strikeout issues in the minor leagues. Evan White is a great defensive first baseman, he's got huge pop, his barrel rates are off the charts, the problem is there is way too much swing and miss in his game at the big league level. But if you could take Dylan Moore's plate approach a bit and give some of it to Evan White, with Dylan Moore being a guy that walked over 13% of the time in 2022, all of a sudden, maybe Evan White has a chance to be a decent bat in the lineup. So you sent this over to me yesterday, and I had to suppress a laugh. I honestly, (laughs) I thought you were joking. I really thought you were joking, because I'm like, no, 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 no. We're supposed like... We're taking this seriously. I I don't want to be joking around, but explain it to me a little. I was like, well, okay, I'll listen. So it is a really interesting proposition. Here's my one thing with this. Is this factoring in the fact that Dylan Moore also has a pretty high strikeout rate as well? It's not as high as you would think. What is it? I mean... 29%. Okay, so it's above league average, but... So I looked this up yesterday. You're right. It's 29%. But if Evan White was striking out 29% of the time, isn't that much better than the 45% of the time he was striking out in 2020 or the 38% strikeout rate for his career? I mean, if Evan White strikes out 29% of the time and he's walking 13% of the time and he's playing good defense and he's crushing baseballs when he connects, doesn't that have the chance to be at least like a two and a half win player? does mold a little bit better, I will say. I, I it, That thought did creep into my mind, though. I'm like, oh, Dylan Moore does strike out a little bit. But you're right. The big thing Evan White needs to fix is to stop striking out. I mean, that, that, was, his, that was his big crux. I remember when he came up, it's like, well, he's, you know, he's in the top percent of the league and hitting the ball hard. He just isn't hitting the ball very often. So that's the big key here. And Notice you didn't use anyone's contact rate because that's going to be mine. We'll get to that here in a couple minutes. Um, so that one was already taken. But if you're going to add another option, it's like, well, why don't you add the best walk rate on the team in Dylan Moore? Uh, and, you know, kind of surprising for a utility to guy like Dylan Moore to have that good of a walk rate. But, you know, it'd be really good. And it'd be really good on Evan because that's what first basemen do. They crush baseballs and they get on base. And that's what that would do. And, hey, if that, that formula could uh, – put Evan White with an on-base percentage of 368 like Dylan Moore's is, I think there would be a lot less people complaining about Evan White because the paranoia with me is that I think we're going to get the current version of Evan White on the roster if the Mariners don't get a DH here in the next you know three, four weeks before pitchers and catchers report. 
because I don't like that version of Evan White. This version of Evan White would be, actually be an impact player on the Mariners with his defense. I mean, he wouldn't even have to, you know, mash 30 homers or 25 homers. I mean, you could probably settle for 15 to 20 home runs with, you know, a 368 on base percentage and with the amount of power he adds. I mean, you could slug maybe 450. And that's, you know, a two, two and a half, three win player right there with his defense. And you'd say, yep, Ty France, you're now a DH and Evan White can go to first. I mean, Evan White needs anything possible to help him get on base. If people don't remember, in 2021, it was a short sample size because he only played 30 games that year. Evan White put up an OPS plus of 23 that season, which is... 70 cent percent below league average. I'm not even sure how it's possible to get an OPS plus that low, but he did. So whatever he can do to raise that OPS and OPS plus you will take. And if that's taking Dylan Moore's walks, he'll take it because combine it with some home runs and some good defense over a full season can make to something. I'm going to look up Abe Toro's OPS plus or WRC plus here really quick, just so we can have some comparison as you know, I watched Abe this year and I literally thought he was the worst player on planet earth. He still managed a 62 WRC plus this year. And Evan white had a third of that. People (laughs) like to, I mean, people like to get on Kelnick's case and there is some warrant to it because he struggled his first couple of seasons, but it's been a while since people have seen Evan White on a big league field because it's it's almost night and day when you look at Kelnick compared to White. Because Evan White, a guy that was also a, not as good of a prospect as Kelnick was, but a good prospect, and he really struggled. So if he could find any way to kind of find his form in 2023 when he gets back on the field, would be great. And if it can start with some walks, that's a good place to start. And we don't know how healthy he is either. Like. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard anything. It's kind of like Kyle Lewis. Those first two Jerry Depoto first round picks, Kyle Lewis and Evan White. I mean, injuries galore. I mean, just haven't been able to really figure it out. I'm I would be okay if Evan White is a valuable baseball player on the 2023 Mariners, but he has given me nothing to to latch onto or hope or have any optimism that he'll actually do so. So I guess that's a spring training problem, which uh, we'll get to what in about a month and a half from now when uh, when pitchers and catchers report. Okay, my hitter traits. This one's fun. I'm going to do J.P. Crawford's contact, like contact rate. J.P. Crawford's contact rate to Cal Raleigh. Man, what a baseball player that would turn into. So Cal this year struck out about the same amount uh, as... Um, about he struck out about the same amount of time as Dylan Moore did, 29.4%. J.P. Crawford, who ranks in about the top percent of baseball in like whiff rate and K rate, uh, stuff like that, uh, 13%. Cal Raleigh with a 13% strikeout rate would be very elite. Is that just Johnny Bench? Uh, I did some comps. Want to hear the comps? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I did it comp by Cal's eggs of velocity is hard hit percentage and JP's strikeout rate, which is those numbers. Cal had about a, a 91 average eggs of velocity, a 43 and a half hard hit rate. And then JP Crawford's 13.3% strikeout rate. It's essentially 
2022 Juan Soto with a, with a 91 average exit velocity of 47% hard hit rate and a 14.5% strikeout rate. It's pretty good. And if Juan, you want to, if yeah, Juan, Juan Soto. Soto that catches, I mean, yes. Well, sign us I, up. I was about to say, I did one more. Also a catcher, Alejandro Kirk, 90 and a half exit velocity, 45% hard hit rate, 10% strikeout rate. Yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> That'd be pretty good for Cal. And man, I mean, that's really the only hole in his game. And what keeps him low is that he just strikes out way too much. He's got, you know, uh, a high whiff rate. He chases a lot, and especially from the right side. He's just not really as good from the high uh, from the right side. But if you give him, you know, JP's swing and miss for as much we trash on JP, and I don't, you know, I saw him working at driveline the other day. Credit to you, JP. Get that power up. Get a better swing. Because his swing mechanically towards the end of the year was really struggling. But the bat-to-ball skills in terms of just getting the bat on the ball is still pretty good. He makes contact with the best of them in baseball. And that's something Cal Raleigh would love. Look, Cal Raleigh put up an OPS plus of 122 this past year. That's really good. If he starts making contact at J.P. Crawford's rate and he starts to rack up some more hits as time goes on. Because again... We don't really care about batting average on this podcast, but just for reference, Raleigh hit 211 this year. If 211 all of a sudden turns into 235 or 240, you're talking about Cal Raleigh being far and away the best catcher in baseball between his power, his plus defense, and then all of a sudden if he's making more quality contact, it's through the roof. And he, you know, I probably can, I don't don't know who, who do you consider the best pure power hitter on the Mariners, Julio or Cal? I mean, it's, I think pure power, raw power, it has to be Julio. Hmm. Yeah, I I would probably say so. But I mean, in terms of pure production, Cal put up about 200 less at bats than Julio did this year and had the same amount of home runs. So from an efficiency standpoint, I mean, Cal does not struggle to hit him out of the ballpark. He, you know, led all catchers with 27 home runs and just 415 plate appearances and led the entire Mariners team in isolated power. So you add on JP, who, have, by the way, had the second lowest ISO, but the, the highest contact rate and lowest strikeout rate amongst Mariners players to Cal. It's a pretty deadly combo. I, I, I can't complain. Let's see it. Let's see it. Give JP's contact rate to Cal and let him go out and finish as the runner up as the 2023 AL MVP only behind Julio. So what would his extension look like as we were talking about last week? If <laughs> that was it, I mean, we're, we're, you know, no, we're probably talking, he's cracking $300 million. If that's the case with Scott Boris as his agent. Yeah. He's getting like eight years for two fifty at least. Yeah, man. I mean, this is a really fun experiment. I really do enjoy doing this because we we can really dream about this, about how good Cal could possibly be. Cal will never strike out just 13% of the time for the amount of uh, over-the-fence power that he has. But it's cool cool to speculate about, I will say. One can dream. And let's just say this. If you're listening and you have any hitter traits that you want to take from a Mariner and give to another Mariner... Let us know. Go follow us on Twitter at Marine Layer Pod and tweet us your answers. What Mariner trait do you want to see given to another player? Because it is a fun exercise. And I've enjoyed doing this too because it's fun to dream and one can dream. Let's move on here to our MLB wraparound.
Well, TJ, we've got pretty brand new news as early as today. Third time's a charm, like you said in the open, for Carlos Correa. We think he has finally found a team, and we believe this saga is over. Reportedly, Carlos Correa is returning to the Minnesota Twins on what is a six-year, $200 million contract. It can max out at 10 years for $270 million. Is it finally over? Well, we were just talking about experiments. I think Correa was experimenting with teams here in free agency. We will never see this again. We will not. He has now agreed to contracts with three separate teams in one offseason. I mean, I'm just glad it's over because we're we're sitting here for the last couple of weeks like, okay, is Correa going to sign? He said he was going to sign, but he, he hasn't. He turns down 13 for 350 from the Giants. Uh, or he, well, sorry, uh, let me reword that actually. The Giants turned him down essentially 13 for 350 after his medicals came back. They didn't like uh, an ankle surgery he had when he was in the minors in 2014. The Mets had the same cold feet with a 12 year, $315 million deal. But the Twins, who know more about as much about Correa's medicals as anyone except the Houston Astros, knew this probably all along. And they said going into this offseason, they didn't want to crack $300 million on a deal. And what do you know? All the dominoes fall right in their lap and they're able to get Correa for $200 million over six years. I I hope Jerry offered that. I really do. I don't think he did, but man, I hope he did because it, it, like these the opportunities like this do not happen. They do not where a guy who's supposed to get a decade-long contract has stuff fall through to the point where you could sign him not into his 40s. I'll respond with two things. First off, yes or no, I'll ask you, is this the most ridiculous free agent saga we've ever seen from one specific player? My answer is yes. I mean, this is stuff you would see in the NBA. (laughs) Like, literally, this is... is Blake Griffin and Doc Rivers going over to DeAndre Jordan's house and locking him in there until he signs a contract. That's what this is. It really is. The second part of that is how this ties into the Mariners. I would have loved to hear and would love to find out that DePoto offered that deal to Correa. I'm with you. I don't think they did. But would Correa take that exact contract to go to the Mariners? I think the Mariners still would probably have to overpay to go get him because, you know, he just played with the Twins. He has friends on that team. He knows the organization. I feel like if the Mariners wanted to get Correa, they would have had to offer more. And we heard a lot from Ryan Divish this offseason that he didn't think the Mariners would offer for Correa just because that guys in the clubhouse don't like him in the Mariners clubhouse based on a lot of things the Astros did over the years, the cheating scandal in 2017. He said there's still a lot of guys there really just don't like Correa and think he's cocky and and don't like a whole number of things. But us as fans, I mean, just logistically makes sense. I would have done six for 230 as well. I don't know what, qual- what how much of an overpay you got to get to get him here, but six for 230 bumps his, his AAV up, you know, to what, 30... Some quick math there. Do we ha- do we have some quick math? We'll bust out some quick math. Uh, you know, uh, two two thirty divided by six um, is. Let's see here. Some slow math here. Uh, Thirty eight million dollars a year. 
would have done it. They can afford it. We we believe they can afford it. But again, didn't don't really think that contract was offered. So it it, it is unfortunate. It, he would have fit. It would have been great, but we can just shrug at this point. I would have done it. I absolutely would have given him six years for two thirty eight. But if it is about a clubhouse thing and players really didn't want him there, I still feel like that in time, if he was playing as well as he has throughout his career, players probably would have gotten used to him. You know, you hear about some clubhouse issues from guys with from time to time. We heard it about Jesse Winker this year. Well, Winker also wasn't playing that well. I feel like some of this stuff with Correa could have been patched up if he was the best player on the team or second best player behind Julio. But I guess we'll never know. This is such a win for the Twins because, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the offseason, they said they were not, they wanted to re sign Correa, but they were not going to go north of $300 million. At the beginning of the offseason, they offered him 10 for 285, which I thought was kind of funny at the point because we knew we were going to, he was going to, a healthy Correa is going to get more than that. Uh, He turned that down, but it, it turns out with the vesting option in this contract, it could end up being 10 years for 270. So the essentially the twins have saved $15 million off their original offer. And if everything checks out, he could be there a decade making $27 million a year. So kudos, a Midwest team making a big signing, something that is rare nowadays. Is Rocco Baldelli still going to hand him the broken Rolex? I really hope so. <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to ask him. Here's here's what Carlos Correa needs to do. Assuming this deal finally gets done and it becomes official and he has his press conference, he needs to sit down and his opening statement needs to just be word for word uh, the Squidward lines from SpongeBob where he goes, I was just kidding. Come on. Come on. You guys know I was just kidding. Like in terms of, oh, I was never going to leave the twins. I wanted to be here all along. That's that's what he's got to do, because w- what else is he going to say when they ask, well, why did you like all these teams over the Twins? Why did you like the Giants over the Twins and then the Mets over the Twins? And then now you come back. I feel like he should just kind of try to make a lighthearted joke out of it. Which he probably will. We might that we'll probably get some quotes with that when spring training rolls around. So let, let's uh, let's mark down like the official docket of Correa's offseason. They had one one team announced a press conference for him, a separate team's owner talked about him on the record publicly wanting that he was very excited to have him on their roster and he signs with neither of them. Not unbelievable. Like, <laughs> that is really unbelievable. We will never see this again. Never. It, it, it is absolutely insane. But what's most funny about this twins deal when the tweet comes from Jeff Pass and that he signed the deal, it still says pending a physical, which is the other two were also pending a physical that wasn't able to uh wasn't able to get hammered out funny stuff nonetheless another big name gets signed to not to a free agent deal but a long-term extension for rafael devers 11 years 331 million dollars to stay with the white Sox. last week he agreed for a 17 million dollar deal to buy out his arbitration this year and now he will be with boston for the foreseeable future a move Personally, I was like, this is literally the only move you can make. You can't let Rafael Devers walk out the door in free agency. And the Red Sox ownership group stepped up and banked him $331 million. 
Third time's a charm for the Red Sox, too. They didn't keep Mookie. They didn't keep Xander Bogarts. But they do keep Devers. And Devers is only going to be 26 years old. So, yeah, it's a 13-year deal, $331 million. But he is essentially a Red Sox for life. He is the face of the franchise. He is a guy that I believe is on a pretty short list in terms of best hitters in baseball. I would put him somewhere in that top 15 range. And the Red Sox couldn't afford to let him go. He is too valuable, and they've let too many other guys go at this point to let him go. They had to do everything possible to keep him in town, and they did. And with a big market like Boston, you're really just kind of shocked the fact they let two franchise cornerstones just walk. But if you think about it from this point, with both Bogarts and Devers going to be free agents this offseason, or Bogarts this offseason, Devers next offseason, it's like, well, you got to keep at least one. I do think they paid the right guy. You paid the younger guy. You paid the better hitter. He sucks on defense. Like, let's just be honest. Devers yeah. is probably going to end up at first base. But, you know, Xander's not going to age very gracefully at shortstop for, for as big as he is. And we already talked about his defensive numbers, which aren't fantastic. So, you know, and if they're like, okay, we're only going to pay one of these guys, they made the smart investment here. I, I don't really think it was that hard of a decision. Not at all. Devers has had three top 15 MVP, MVP finishes in four years. He's made back-to-back All-Star games. He has a silver slugger. His OPS Plus has been above 133 of the last four years, and it was a career high at 141 in 2022. That's a guy you pay and keep long-term. No questions asked. And, you know, he's really kind of historically, you mentioned just the overall like OPS plus numbers. If you look at, you know, third baseman before turning 26, he has the sixth most homers, 139, and the fifth most extra base hits of any third baseman before turning 26. It helps. He's been in the league since he's, well, 1920. I think he debuted when he was 19. He was but, 20, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, he's he came up at a really young age, and he's really just blossomed. So it's good. It's good for Boston that they stay there, and people can not freak out. Although um, they're going to need his bat more now than ever. With some other news that came out uh, today, Lyle. Yeah, Trevor's story. I mean, that was some tough news. He had surgery to repair what was a damaged UCL on his elbow. So the reported timetable is four to six months with that surgery for when a player can come back. So yeah, that was kind of tough news for the Red Sox. I mean, it's good they locked up Devers when they did because, again, Trevor Story is probably going to miss some time. If you want the exact terminology, uh, he underwent UCL surgery with an internal brace on his right elbow, or in other words, modified Tommy John surgery with a quicker return date. That's tough news for Boston. And if I, you know, even with his extension and the good joy around the Red Sox... (laughs) Look at that roster, and I think they're finishing in last. And I, I don't even think that's really tough to, to to make that statement. I would agree. And I think this is kind of a win for people that were against the Trevor Story signing in Seattle last year. Because I'm just going to throw this out there. Again, I know it's always a debate between Mariners Twitter, and it's a debate that is never going to be resolved because people are so firm on their opinions. But a lot of Mariners fans would be happy to do what the Red Sox are doing, sign Yoshida, Signed Trevor Story last year. Guys like that. Trevor Story's not panning out so far. Yoshida's unproven. Like the Mariners are in a position to pay and extend a lot of their own guys. And that may be the better route than some of these free agents. Because Trevor Story never hit well away from Coors Field. 
There were questions about his injury history and his elbow specifically last year when he signed. And now it's come back to bite the Red Sox in the rear end. Like, you know, I think the Mariners might know what they're doing sometimes. You make a solid point, but then the same Mariner fans could also point to the 2018 Red Sox. Alas, you know, a very young core there with with Mookie Betts, Devers, Bogarts, etc. But they also, you know, shell out a lot of money for a designated hitter in J.D. Martinez that they really needed to their lineup. And if you remember the 2017 Red Sox, they were a pretty good team, but they didn't have enough offense. So they went out and they signed the best bat on the market, and then they turned around and won a World Series. So I guess you could look at that from multiple ways. Fair point. I'm just providing one perspective. That's all. And I saw some people talking about it today. Yeah, I mean, you make a solid point, especially with story. I think the one that got away, which is for a lot of teams, is, you know, despite the fact he got seven years, it's Marcus Simeon. I mean, I think if that's that's one we're going to lose sleep over, I think that's that's the one we can agree on. Yeah, I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't wish Marcus Simeon was on the Mariners, but the Rangers paid him a whole lot more than the Mariners were willing to offer. So that's a topic in itself. Final topic here on the MLB wraparound. The Phillies made a trade this week. Left-handed reliever, let's do that again. Left-handed reliever Gregory Soto traded from the Tigers to the Phillies. Soto goes to the Phillies along with Cody Clemens, Nick Maton, Matt Veerling, Donnie Sands go back to the Tigers. So Gregory Soto has an interesting profile. He's a hard-throwing left-hander that's made back-to-back all-star games. But is he really that great of a reliever? I'm not sure how well this trade works out for the Phillies. What do you think? Well, he's been an all-star because the Tigers have no other good players on the roster pretty much. So he's the default when, you know, every team's got to have one. So you just let you go default, you go reliever, usually. So Soto's interesting. I mean, if you sort of look at the build, he's kind of similar to Jose Alvarado, who's just an absolute stud with the Phillies, except Alvarado gets way better results. Uh, Soto throws about, you know, 98 fastball sinker from the left side and throws a slider too, which doesn't really profile that well. It's It doesn't move a whole lot and it gets hit around the ballpark a little bit, uh, as opposed to Alvarado, who, you know, pretty much only throws hard stuff, you know, sinkers, and it, and it really works well. But both, you know, big hard-throwing lefties, and the Phillies probably just see something there they can develop a little bit. And to be honest, they didn't have to give up that much. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the other the, the other guys that, you know, were traded here, but they didn't really have to give up too much, to be honest. The Tigers basically just got some versatile pieces back in return. Now, to be fair, in a short sample size this year, Maton actually had a good year. He put up a 138 OPS plus across... 34 games. Veerling wasn't great. He had a good start to his career, but his first full season didn't go all that fantastically. But the Tigers just kind of need anything at this point. Trading Gregory Soto makes sense for them because whether he finds his form again and has a really good 2023 or not, a reliever is not going to make or break that team. They're way too far away from contention. So trading him to a team that can use some bullpen help makes sense. Again, my only thing with Soto is he put up a 328 ERA this year, sure, but his XERA was 408, his XFIP was 458, his K per nine was below nine. Hopefully, for the Phillies' sake, they can kind of unlock some things with him and find his best form because he is a hard-throwing left-hander, that's for sure. But I think he is not as great as what meets the eye of the casual fan. 
whenever you have a lefty who throws 98, of course, you're going to be like, well, there's there's going to be something to work with here. Maybe the Phillies change his slider grip or something, and, and all of a sudden he has a devastating slider opposed to the one he normally throws. It's just kind of odd a lefty who throws 98 to have such a low K per nine. But again, maybe the Phillies just think there's you know something there they can unlock. I always love to think about this, Lyle. The Mariners started their rebuild after the Tigers did. Like, a you know, full season after the Tigers started their rebuild, essentially. And the Tigers don't seem any closer to breaking 500 uh, as the Mariners are to, you know, reaching the Divisional Series next year, which I, you know, I, I sometimes pause and think about that. So there's something to be thankful about. Again, there's a lot of people out there that still like to give Jerry Depoto a hard time. When you look in perspective of this rebuild, they had one really awful year in 2019. In 2020, yes, they were below 500, but by technicality, they were in playoff contention in 2020. And that was really it. They really only had one terrible year in 2019 because they won 90 games in 21, barely missed the playoffs, won 90 games in 2022, made the playoffs, and things are only looking up from here. So that rebuild went unbelievably fast. There are teams like the Tigers, There are teams like the Marlins. There are teams like the A's who are not rebuilding all that well. The Mariners did it pretty well. And I think too many teams look at the Astros model and say, yeah, we want to do that. We want to do that. The problem is you would need to have the number one overall pick, I think, three of four seasons, what it was for the Astros, four straight hundred loss seasons. That hurts you financially so much. And I mean, yeah, just wouldn't fly in a lot of places. So it, it, it's just kind of a hard sell. But the Tigers, whether intentionally or not, I mean, are not getting <laughs> not getting very close to contention. So there's a couple of things to be thankful for. I'll throw the Royals in there too. They're doing the same thing where it's just like wins just aren't there. So it's interesting. And I think Gregory Soto in Philadelphia uh, is going to be interesting at, as well. Let's close out the show now with Speak Your Mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. Okay, Lyle, for this week, what is on your mind? Okay, I've got two. I'll start with one. And the first one is just, I'm so tired of the rain. You would think living my whole life in Seattle, you'd get used to it. But when you hit the dog days of winter... I mean, you're just so ready to be done with it. It's just, it's such a mood killer. I think you were always more tolerant, you were more tolerant of the rain than I've always been, but it just kills me every year. And I'm just itching for the days where one, it's not dark this early and two, it's not just raining all day long because I've had enough of it. I think I felt I think I was a little worse with it last year. I think last year was the first winter I'd really spent living alone, not in college and not at home. So it probably hit a little bit harder. I honestly haven't, I, you know, I miss the sun, but it really hasn't been as bad, I've thought, this year. And, you know, we live in similar climates. I live four hours south of you now. So it's, you know, it, it is similar. But honestly, you know, I kind of like rain when I when I try and fall asleep. So I can't complain there, uh, complain there too much. I guess. I mean, maybe it's easier to fall asleep to the rain, but throughout the day when you'd love to just step outside or really do anything, it just makes it kind of hard. Lucky you, dog. We'll be in Arizona in a month, so there's your son. <laughs> well, that sounds nice. 
get some sun. Are you practicing your golf swing? Well, I might have to start, but again, if it's raining all the time, when am I going to do that? So we're supposed to play a par three as a group. Uh, we're going to probably, I, I think we're going to, in our speaker mind segment the week after Lyle, I think we're going to have to do a breakdown of, of how we shot on the golf course, because I'll tell you, I have not swung a golf club on grass in a long time. So okay. <laughs> we might have a lot to break down. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. I played a decent amount during the COVID days, but it's been a while since I've played. I think I'll be, I'm not going to be good, but I feel like I won't have to come on here and say that I shot a 200 or anything like that. So if there's water, my ball is going in it. I almost promise it's either going <laughs> in the water or it's not getting off the ground. Yeah. So I'm, you know, maybe I'll practice. Maybe I'll go get some putt putt in and, and practice sort of the rotation and then oh. just adapt it for a, adapt it for a, for a, like a pitching wedge on a par three. Well, there we go. Like I said, we'll, we'll definitely have to do a report on it. I hope I'm not jinxing myself here. I think I'll be fine to hold my own, but that'll be a fun report in about four or five weeks. Yeah, hopefully we don't have anything for the loser because I would really be worried for myself because I, uh, I don't want to do anything stupid uh, <laughs> because my I, I'm shitty at golf. Uh, my first speak your mind this week. I've spent a lot of time, not on this podcast, but in general, trashing the the Corvallis food scene. I live here in Corvallis, um, and I spent time just saying, you know, I think the food kind of sucks here, and that's why, um, you know, I look forward to going home and, and eating food in you know a bit in a bigger city because there's just better food in, in bigger places. But I, you know, I've made it a point to try and go out and eat every Saturday and go try somewhere new. And I've honestly, you know, that's probably what I needed to do because I've honestly found some pretty good food. So, you know, hat tip to that. So what have you found? I know your go-to place is that Korean barbecue place, but that's a Hawaiian usually, barbecue or Hawaiian barbecue. Yeah. But that's usually what you're reporting on. And I don't get to hear much else. Yeah. I've been, I've been to a couple burger places, you know, kind of hard to screw up a burger. So those, those places were pretty good. Uh, I went to a, Delhi two weeks ago or three weeks ago because of Christmas. Um, yeah, the Hawaiian barbecue, you know, my number one's Chipotle, obviously, actually, but I haven't been to Chipotle, uh, hot seat Chipotle was since they started charging for like double rice and double beans and such, which is just an absolute abomination that you, you charge like a dollar and a half for extra rice. So dude, I probably won't be going to much Chipotle then, uh, anymore with their already what? skimpy servings. I mean, I do think that's, I do think that's some bullshit, but why don't you just get the single rice and not do double rice? Because sometimes I want something more filling without paying for extra protein. All right. Fair enough. Because like I could pay for like double chicken, but then I'm like, you know, paying $11 for for a bowl. And I'm like, well, double rice is free. And it, it like gives the impression to your body that you're actually eating more without like adding on too many more calories. So I don't know. It is good. But I got some more places to try here, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and make the rounds, um, and, and I'll report back if anything is exceptionally shitty or exceptionally good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Let's put it like that. Okay, second speak your mind. I think we're about to go both go sports-related here, which we do a lot, but you know what? We're in the season where there's a lot of sports going on. The Seattle Seahawks, a team that, like we've talked about on this podcast, we are also a fan of, along with the Mariners, pulled off... What was pretty a what, what was pretty a oh my gosh oh my goodness I can't speak today. What was really a miraculous Sunday in what was a situation where they needed to win and have the Lions win to get into the playoffs. 
Both happen. The Seahawks win in overtime against the Rams at home in what was a nail-biting final game of the season. And then on top of that, the Lions go into Lambeau Field against Aaron Rodgers in a game and type of situation in which he almost always prevails. The Lions win that game. And just like that, the 9-8 and Geno Smith-led Seahawks in their first season without Russell Wilson are going to the playoffs. That's pretty cool. And at the end of that Lions game, I mean, the Lions go score a touchdown and they go up, I think, four points. They were up four points, I think. Um, and then Rodgers, he's taking the field on his final drive. The camera's following right behind him, that NBC camera. I'm like, well, he's going to drive them down. They're going to take the lead on a touchdown. And Lyle and I are going to be disappointed by watching that happen. Um and he throws a pick on the second play of that drive. I'm like, whoa, this is actually reality. And then the Lions go down the field and ice it. I remember how I felt in March, man. I mean, I was like, when are we going to make the playoffs again? It's like, I don't know. I'm like, the roster's bad. We don't have a quarterback. Man, it's just like, what, like what, what's next? Like, I don't know. It was so dark. It was so dark. And now the Seahawks not only will be making the playoffs, they'll be picking number five. In the, in the draft, thanks to the Russell Wilson trade, I think there's a pretty clear winner on that uh, on that Russ trade. As we we're like, man, what do the Seahawks have to do to win this trade? I think they've managed to do that in year one. They are going to be playing in the one thirty window on Sunday, and Russell Wilson's going to have to sit on his couch and watch from afar. Wait, do they not play Saturday? I thought it's Saturday. Oh, did I say Sunday? It's Saturday. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I had my own schedule right. Yeah. That is a fun scene to think about that he's going to sit down and say, yeah, that's the team I wanted to leave. I am still a little sad and now I'm totally nitpicking just full disclaimer. I am totally nitpicking that the Seahawks lost the ability to pick third and move to fifth because the chances at Jalen Carter, or Will Anderson, Anderson seem much lower now. Mm-hmm. But that being said, if you told us the day Russ got traded in March, that don't worry, the Seahawks are still making the playoffs and the Seahawks are going to pick within the top five thanks to the Broncos, we'd be like, this is the greatest day of our whole life. And just the way it happened, too, you beat the Rams to to get to that ninth win. Sean, you've like never been able to beat Sean McVay, who, by the way, might have just coached his last game in the NFL on Sunday. Rumors galore about him retiring. Uh, I mean... If you're able to, you know, you get your top five pick, Sean McVay retires, and then you play a playoff game where you could potentially upset the San Francisco 49ers, your arch rival, within the span of like two weeks. I mean, (laughs) wow. I mean, I'll take it. That's pretty good. Now, I think the odds of the Seahawks winning are pretty low. That Niners roster is loaded, but it is hard to beat a team three times in a season. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, we will. It'll be interesting. And the weather... It's supposed to be rainy and crummy. There's been a ton of crummy weather in California mm. this last week or so with that storm coming in off the uh, the Pacific Ocean. So, never say never. If it muddies down, everyone slows down, the game gets tighter. So, we'll never say never. All right, now to the other football for my final Speak Your Mind. Uh, there was a quote I said when I was home New Year's Day 10 days ago, or New Year's Eve actually, technically. Lyle and I are sitting in my house and we're watching the the playoff games. And it's Georgia, Ohio State. And and this is gonna this is essentially an apology to Stetson Bennett, Georgia quarterback, now back to back two time national champion. 
Stetson threw a pick in the first half of that Ohio State-Georgia game in the semifinal. And I got up off my couch and I screamed at the 25-year-old seventh-year quarterback, I think, seven years. Yep. Get a job at the top of my lungs. I think I might have said, get a fucking job, Stetson Bennett. But Stetson, from that point, outscored Ohio State, let a go-ahead touchdown drive, and put down one of the biggest beatdowns I have seen on any team, regular or postseason, in any sport ever. Yesterday, during the national championship, 65-7, to the largest margin of victory of any national championship or any bowl game, period. Uh, in the history of college football, all led by number 13 in red. Salute to you, Stetson Bennett. I know you're going to enjoy your five car dealerships that you own across the state of Georgia, and you won't have to work the rest of your life. I mean, that was an absolute beatdown on Monday night. Again, like TCU, I mean, you feel bad because they had such a good year and they had such a good win over Michigan, but we had a feeling it wasn't going to be close. I don't think anybody thought it was going to be like that. In fact, you said at the start of the game, Georgia might put up 60. And then in the fourth quarter, you're like, wait, I was kidding when I said that. No, they're actually going to put up 60. And they could have put up 80 if they wanted to, if they like actually kept their foot on the gas. I mean, they had 65 with their backup quarterback in the game in seven and a half minutes remaining in the fourth quarter. If they wanted to, they could have scored. They could have scored eighty points, which is just mind-numbing to think about. This isn't a college football podcast, but I guess my main takeaway from this game is we're going to need. We need if people really care about the postseason of college football. I don't know what the solution is, but something would need is going to be need to be done to disperse the talent a little bit because as it is right now. As it is, but you know, it, this is a college football problem exclusively, not basketball or baseball. Really, it's too much talent at the top. Too much, because then we get we get stuff like this. This should not happen in a championship game of any sport, and yet it did happen. And and it there's nothing that anyone on TCU could have done for this to happen. So that that just a quick thought there. I mean, it it needs to disperse a little bit. I don't know the solution, but. Props to you, Stetson Bennett. Props to you, Georgia. Back-to-back national champions. The first time since Bama uh, a decade ago. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. My final thought here is if quarterbacks like Hendon Hooker or Michael Penix, who were not nominated for the Heisman like Stetson were, were playing on Georgia, yeah, it would have been not just the same result. It could have been better. Like, those guys are better quarterbacks than Stetson is. 100%. Yeah, but... I will like I will say I've been very impressed with how Stetson Bennett has played. He is a very good college quarterback and yeah. he runs that Georgia system very well. Very well. He does everything he's asked. And let, who another one more thing. Who names their son Lad? L A D D, the wide receiver for Georgia, Lad McConkey. I mean, what 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 could you imagine that guy does for a living? If you said, "Okay, here's a Lad McConkey." It's got to be a nickname, right? No, that's his name. Is it really? That's his. That's his legal yes. name. I'm I, almost certain. Yeah, that's that's wild. <laughs> and he's their yeah. leading wide receiver too, which I think is funny. Yeah, that Georgia team was unbelievably good. Like you said, 
Hat tip to Stetson Bennett, good college quarterback, back-to-back national champion. Meanwhile, for us, that'll just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. If you guys want to continue to follow us, you can listen to the full podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, or get the video version on YouTube. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and again, YouTube. We do a bunch of YouTube shorts. You can follow all of our channels across those platforms at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. We thank you as always for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>